Welcome to the Renaissance Christian Church Podcast. We're a church family with the mission of seeking God, serving others, and sharing the gospel. We're grateful that you have joined us as we study through the Bible, and we hope that it brings you encouragement and inspiration for your daily life. Here's Pastor Robert Fonseca. All right. Well, I was uh, remembering, you know, it's summertime, and so uh, we've been uh, swimming a lot more, uh, thankfully. Uh, we have a pool, and we can do that. But I was, as we're doing that, I'm thinking uh, about all the times where, you know, maybe you've done this, where you had to teach your, your child how to jump in the pool, especially when they were real little. And uh, they would get to the edge, and you would be there in the pool because you're going to catch them, right, because they're a little afraid to jump in the pool. And uh, as they're looking out at you, they're real hesitant about jumping in because of, you know, just their fears in general of jumping into a pool and maybe they don't swim well, swim real well. So maybe they're going to, they're thinking you're not going to catch them and they're going to sink to the bottom or, uh, you know, I don't know what it is that, that causes fear in them. But sometimes they even say, hey, get a little closer, dad, you know, so that I know you're going to catch me. Uh, they allow, again, the fear of jumping into a pool to cloud out that their dad is right there and is going to catch them, that he's not going to let them fall. He's not going to let them sink to the bottom of the pool. He's going to catch them, but they are not too sure. Right? It's not until that they actually take that leap of faith and they jump out and I catch them, or you as a parent catches them, that they're assured, oh yeah, it wasn't that bad. And as a matter of fact, they get out of the pool and they keep jumping and jumping and they won't stop jumping in and they actually wear you out. It's like, okay, that's enough jumping. You know, they've overcome that fear. But before that, they were so worried about their surroundings that they lost focus on you, their parent, that you were going to catch them. And I can't help but think of that's us with the Lord. Right? Sometimes we allow our fears to cloud out and, help and keep us from focusing on the Lord, that the Lord's right there with us the whole time, even better than a parent. And that's going to be the issue that we're going to address this morning in chapter 51 of Isaiah in a message entitled, The God of Comfort. So you see the prophet here, that we're, as we look at it in a minute, the prophet is speaking for the Lord to the remnant of believers within the nation. And he's calling them to take some action in the midst of their trial and tribulation. So picture them on the side of the pool, afraid of what's going to happen, afraid of what's coming. If you've been with us for some time now, you know what's coming for the nation of Israel. It's captivity. And they're worried about that. And here the prophet is going to remind them that God is the God of comfort. God does not want them to lose heart in the midst of the coming storm or the coming trial. He doesn't want them to act in despair. And he doesn't want them to lose sight that God is right there in control. And the Lord is going to call his people to a, a few action items, a few action steps, if you will. As a matter of fact, as we go through this chapter, you will hear a number of things like God calling his people to listen to him, to look to their humble beginnings, to look to the example of his past dealings with his people, to pay attention to him, 
to give ear to him, to lift up their eyes to see his power, to wake up and to hear him. All those things the Lord is going to tell his people to do, full and well knowing that they're going into captivity. But despite that, he wants them to keep their eyes focused on the Lord of comfort. He calls his people to action. And this is to bring them comfort in the midst of the trial. And so let's go to the text this morning in chapter 51. And right away at the very beginning, the prophet says, and speaking on behalf of the Lord, listen to me. So the Lord is about to speak to his people and give them some direction. Again, going back to the illustration of a child on the side of the pool, being a little afraid to jump in. You have to say, hey, focus, listen to me. Jump, I'm going to catch you. I'm right here. Listen, listen. You know, as they're maybe contesting all the things that may go wrong if they actually jump in. And so here the Lord is telling his people, listen to me. Give me your attention. And who is he speaking to? This is important. He says this, listen to me, you who pursue, the, pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. He's speaking to his very own people. God is talking to his people and remind them, hey, listen to me, focus on me. Some things are going to happen, but stay focused on me. You are my people. And we know they're his people because he says, you who pursue, pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. So these are his people that are trying to do the right thing, right? We as believers, we try to do the right thing. We don't always do it, and we don't always do it correctly. But the point is, is that we try. God's people are known because they pursue righteousness. They actually seek the Lord as opposed to those who don't pursue righteousness and don't seek the Lord. And Jesus actually said this to his disciples in John chapter 14, verses 23 through 24. The Lord speaks to his people because they're going to try to do what's right. And here he says this, if anyone loves me, in John 14, verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Again, the reason I read that is because Jesus himself said those people that are his, they do his commandment. They try to do what is right. They don't always do it. We ourselves don't always do what's right. But we try. We pursue after it. We seek the Lord. And so God is talking to his people knowing that they're going to listen. The question for each and every one of us this morning, I ask you just in regards to this section is, will you pay attention to the word of the Lord as he calls out to you this morning to listen? Right now, each and every one of you who are hearing this, the Lord is saying, listen to me, not just those who pursue righteousness, because this message isn't just for those within the church, but even those outside the church, wherever you are in your life spiritually or maybe you don't even have a spiritual life, so to speak. Will you listen to the word of the Lord? So what exactly does the Lord direct his people to do? He's going to direct them to do four different things, and all these things are meant to bring them comfort. The first one is this, 
And we're going to find this in verses 2, at the end of verse 1, and then down through verse 3, is the Lord is going to direct His people to look back at God's intervention in their life. He's going to tell them to look back at God's intervention in their life. Look at the end of verse 1. He says, look. So He says, listen, now look. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain. When he was one, I called him. Then I blessed him and multiplied him. So God wants the nation of Israel, before they go into uh, captivity, and even when they're there, to know that God's going to be there with them. God's there holding his arms out for them. In order for them to remember this, he wants them to look back, to remember their humble beginnings. That's what he's talking about in verse 1. Remember, Israel, I called you out of a rock. It's like God went into a, a, a mountain and chose a piece of the mountain and said, this is my servant I'm going to use, the nation Israel. And he wants them to remember that you're special to me. I called you for a purpose. Not only that, he reminds them to look at how he dealt with their ancestors in the past, specifically their father Abraham. When he says, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain. These are the people that God used to bring forth the nation Israel. And if you remember from a few weeks ago when we studied on Mother's Day, they weren't the perfect couple. They made mistakes, but yet God used them. God chose them to bring forth an entire nation. He says, I called Abraham when he was just one person, and I made him a multitude. And he wants this to bring them comfort again, knowing that they're going to go through some trials. Well, how is that to bring them comfort? Look at verse 3. He says, Indeed, after telling them what, who, uh, where he's brought them from, he says, Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and her wilderness he will make like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and sound of a melody. He's telling the nation of Israel... That even in the midst of the tribulation and trial that you're going to go through in the form of captivity, I'm going to comfort you and I'm going to bring you back to the land. I'm going to restore this place that the nation's going to come in and destroy. When you come back, we're going to rebuild and there's going to be joy and gladness and thanksgiving and sounds of melody. There's going to be praise once again in the land. So he's reminding them to look at God's intervention in the past for their comfort. And then he goes on, moving on to verse 4, and we'll read through a few verses here, because this is the second point for the nation of Israel to know that God is there for them. He wants them to look forward to God's intervention in this world. So he says, look back at that intervention I made in your past, but not only that, you can also look forward, because even though you're going to go into captivity, I'm going to be there with you. I'm not going to leave you alone. And again, I'm going to bring you out of it. Again, going back to the illustration with the child on the side of the pool, when they, before you have to get them to jump, you could trust me, son or daughter, whoever it is, dad's not going to drop you. I'm going to catch you. And even when they jump, you catch them and hold them in the midst of it. And then you set them back out on the side of the pool and they just keep doing it again because they trust you. 
They know that you're going to do it. And this is what God is calling the nation Israel to do himself. Again, look forward to God's intervention in this world. And he says this, look at verse 4. Pay attention to me, O my people. Give ear to me, O my nation. For, the, for a law will go forth from me, and I will set my justice for a light of the people's. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the people. The coastlands will wait for me, and my arm, they will wait expectantly. So God here is telling his people again uh, to pay attention to what I'm going to say because I'm going to deliver you in the future. I'm going to intervene. Pay attention. Give heed to my word. My nation, my people, he calls them again, reiterating his covenant relationship with his people. Because again, don't, don't we as God's people, just like the nation of Israel, sometimes forget that God is with us. You know, when, again, when we go through a, a trial, we might think that God has forgotten about us. Am I really a child of God if I'm going through this? No, he's saying, hey, you're going to go through this, and you're my people. You are my nation. Um, you have that covenant relationship with me. And he's saying, now listen, my instruction has already gone forth. My orders, my plans, my decrees, I have already set in motion for the future, and you can count on them to happen. And that instruction that he gives, where he says, for a law will go forth from me, is the instruction of his righteous salvation is what it's talking about. God is going to extend his salvation by bringing them out of captivity and back to the land. He says, you're going to go into captivity, but be comforted that I'm going to take you back out of that. You're not going to stay there forever. He will save his people in captivity. And if you've been with us now, you know that through the prophet Isaiah, he prophesied that another nation will come in and take over Babylon and eventually will allow the nation of Israel to return back home. And you can find those stories in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah where it's recorded how the Persian Empire, specifically the king, allowed Israel to go back and rebuild their land. <clears throat> There's also something else I want to point out here in verse 5 of the text just to uh, show how this prophecy also has another extended meaning. It's not just that God is going to save the nation of Israel who are the, uh, His people. He also says, you notice in verse 5, "...and my arms will judge the peoples, the coastlands will wait for me." And specifically that word coastlands, in the, in the prophecy of Isaiah, many people believe that this is talking about other people outside of the nation Israel. So it's a kind of an allusion to a worldwide salvation that God is going to offer. God's plan of salvation is going to go out not just through the nation of Israel, for the nation of Israel, excuse me, but also for all peoples. Those on the coastlands will also be waiting for salvation of the Lord. So their salvation is going to come for the Lord. And in verse 6, look at now at verse 6, especially 6 through and verse 8, he's going to talk about this salvation that's coming. It's not a maybe. It's not a, well, we'll see how it goes. No, it's decreed and it's going to happen. Look at the language that he uses. He says, lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath. 
For the sky will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and, inha- and its inhabitants will die in like manner. But, so there's a comparison, but my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not wane. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, a people in whose heart is the law. Do not fear the reproach of man, neither be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them like a garment, and the grub will eat them like wool. But my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation, uh, my salvation to all generations. The point of this section is, Lord says, look at all that's going on. All this is temporal. This captivity that you're going to go through is going to be temporal. But my salvation, which comes through, is eternal. It's going to last. It is not going to wane. It is not going to fade. And it's going to be extended for all generations. Therefore, they are told, don't fear this. Don't fear the world. Don't fear this trial because it's not going to last forever. And so knowing all this, now the prophet speaks on behalf. It could be that he's speaking for himself now that he knows it's going to happen or on behalf of his people because look what he says now in verses 9 through 11. He is actually speaking to the Lord at this point now. So at first he was speaking for the Lord. Now he is speaking to the Lord. He says in verse 9, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not thou who cut Rahab in pieces? Who pierced the dragon? Was it not thou who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? So here the prophet is doing exactly what the Lord told him. He's remembering what the Lord has done in the past. And he's saying, if you're going to deliver us, then let's do it, right? Let's, let's save the world right now, so to speak. Wake up, O arm of the Lord. He's calling and praying for God for deliverance right now. He recognizes what the Lord has done. He's calling for the Lord to come and rescue his people, right? Look at verse 11. He wants them to be rescued and the, so it, for this purpose. So the ransom of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion and everlasting joy will be on their heads and they will obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. He's all come now, Lord, so that we don't have to experience all the sadness and all the sighing of frustration and of, of torment. It's almost like, hey, let's not go through what you've said is going to happen. Let's just come right now and you deliver us. Let's not wait any longer. It's similar to maybe even what you might be thinking in your own life. You might be saying, Lord, why don't you come right now, Lord Jesus? Why do we have to wait even why do we have to wait any longer for your salvation? Just come back right now. Why doesn't the Lord just come right now? Why didn't he save Israel at that time? Why did he make Israel go through the captivity that they went through? Well, if you know what's been going on in the Old Testament at this time, God has been warning the nation Israel over and over again, generation after generation after generation, warning them and telling them to return back to the Lord. He's given them a ton of chances. 
He's been merciful and gracious with the nation of Israel. But for the most part, they have refused to listen to the call of the Lord. And the Lord has been saying now that it's time for you to be disciplined. You have to suffer the consequences of your sins. Since you didn't listen to reason, remember the very beginning of Isaiah, he says, come let us reason. Now you have to suffer uh, tough love, so to speak. I mean, don't we do that sometimes? We don't listen to the Lord at first. That first warning, that first initial, like, hey, what you're going to do isn't right. The Holy Spirit speaks to you and tells you not to do that. And then you go and do it, and you have to suffer the consequences for that sin. And think about it now in our own lives. Those of us that are, you know, sometimes we're like, Lord, come now. Our world is so broken and fallen and just all the craziness that is going, why don't you come right now, Lord, and heal this land? But think about maybe those, what would happen if the Lord came back? It'd be great for those of us who are His, but what about those who aren't the Lord's? There's no second chance when the Lord comes back. Think of family members and friends who are not following the Lord. What happens to them at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? They are ushered into the judgment of God. They will suffer the consequences of their rebellion. And as much as I want the Lord to come back, I can't help but think about family members and friends that don't know the Lord. That's something to think about. There's this, you know, there's this, I want to be with the Lord, but, you know, I want, I want so-and-so to get saved first. I mean, I, I think about what if the Lord would have came back like in the 1980s? Before I was a believer, what would have happened to me? Well, I know what would have happened to me. I, don't, I mean, we're just, we don't know the Lord's timing. We, we can trust that the Lord is doing the right thing. He's waiting for that perfect moment to come back. So like if the Lord came back in like 1989-ish, I, I, don't, I wasn't following the Lord in high school. It wasn't until late in my senior year, even after my senior year, really, when I got right with the Lord. I would have been lost for all eternity. I'm so thankful the Lord didn't return then. And so we have to leave it to the Lord. Obviously, the Lord knows what is best. And so even so with the nation of Israel, and moving on to the next point is really the answer to Isaiah's plea, like, Lord, come now. In verse 12, the Lord is going to answer uh, Isaiah, actually from verse 12 to verse 20, uh, 23. He's going to answer him. And he's really going to say, uh, which is our next point of comfort, stop focusing on your fears and start focusing on God. Stop focusing on your fears and start focusing on God. Look at what he says. He says in verse 12, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Again, that word comfort is it. has been throughout this chapter. God is saying, yes, I'm the one who comforts you. But look at what he says. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and the son of man who is made like grass? So even though they recognize who God is, their actions really display that they don't trust the Lord because they're more afraid of the man who's going to hold them into captivity. They're more afraid of their circumstances than their Lord. They're too focused on their fears. Look at what he says. They're focused so much that in verse 13 says, that you have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. 
that you fear continually all day long because of the fury of the oppressor as he makes ready to destroy. But where is the fury of the oppressor? Again, God here, now that the prophet speaks or switches back to speak for the Lord, is giving his response to that cry to salvation. Again, he says, you guys say I'm the Lord, but you don't truly fear me. You're more focused on all the external things outside. And because you do that, you don't truly trust me. And matter of fact, you have forgotten me, who I am. Again, not to overdo it, but again, going back to that illustration of a, of a child jumping off the side of the, of the pool, into, uh, jumping into the pool from the side, if they're so focused on their fears, they're not focused on their dad who has his arms out there who would not let him get hurt, him or her get hurt. They're too focused on their fears. It's like, just jump. Dad's going to catch you. I promise. I've never dropped you before. Well, maybe that one time, but let's not talk about that. No, just kidding. Jump. You can trust me. How much more should we trust the Lord? Especially the nation Israel. He's like, hey, look what I've done for you in the past. Look what I'm going to do for you in the future. But yet you're too focused on your fears. You're paralyzed by your fears. I mean, again, think of your child and how long it takes them to actually jump. They stand on the side of the pool for a really long, long time before they finally jump because they're paralyzed. They're focused on the fear of getting hurt. And the Lord's saying, you've actually forgotten about me to the nation Israel. So the Lord's comforting them. And the Lord encourages to comfort them even though he says they've forgotten about them. Look at verses 14. Uh, look at what he says to them. All the way through 16, he says the exile will soon be set free and will not die in the dungeon, nor will his hand, his excuse me, nor will his bread be lacking. But I am the Lord, your God, who stirs up the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and have covered you with the shadow of my hand to establish the heavens to found the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people. The Lord continues with his encouragement to his people. He's saying, this exile is not going to be long. It's going to be over soon. I'm going to set you free. And I'm not going to leave you in that dungeon, so to speak, of despair. And I'm going to provide for you. You're not going to lack any bread because you're my people, he says. I'm more powerful than your captors. And you are my people, so why would I not? save you and comfort you. Again, let these words comfort the people of God. And as we look at the final verses in 17 through 23, we see our last point this morning is that God's discipline does not last forever. Again, Israel is going through discipline. They brought this upon themselves. But because the Lord loves his children, he's not going to allow this to go on forever. And that's what he says in verse 17 through 23. Let's read the first few verses. Verse 17 says, Rouse yourself, rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem. So again, the prophet in speaking for God is talking to his people. He says, Arise, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger. The chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. So he's telling them, hey, this is from my hand. The discipline that you are suffering 
You're going to suffer in captivity came from me because you've been disobedient. So this is coming from God. And he goes on. He says, there's none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. Verse 18. Nor is there one to take her by the hand among all the sons she has reared. These two things have befallen you. Who will mourn for you? The devastation and destruction and famine and sword. How shall I comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie helpless at the head of every street like an antelope in a net full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Again, God is saying, this comes from my hand, this discipline. And you need to go through it. This is kind of the answer to that question. Why doesn't God deliver them now? In verses 18, he's like, you need to go through it because you need to see that there's nobody that can deliver you. You need to totally trust in me. Nobody can deliver you. Nobody can bring you comfort. Not even your own family members can save you because, as he said, they're helpless as well. They're lying in the streets and they are helpless. There's nobody that can save you. God needs to bring each and every person in this world to the point where they are totally desperate for the Lord. And so sometimes that's what discipline does. It, it reminds us that we need the Lord. And that's why God is bringing, that's one effect of a God allowing us to go through discipline. And so the Lord calls Israel to respond to this and go down to verse 21 now. Because of all this, they're suffering the rebuke of the Lord. He says, therefore, please hear this, you afflicted who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your, God, your Lord, the Lord, even your God, who contends for his people. Behold, I have taken out your hand. I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger. You will never drink it again. So God is telling them that this discipline is not going to last forever. You're going to suffer all the discipline that I need to give to you, but then I'm going to take it out of your hand. He starts saying, I'm giving you this cup of my wrath, but then I'm going to take it out of your hand. This is all from the Lord, and it is definitely for a purpose. And look what he does as we conclude in verse 22 and 23. He says, therefore the Lord says, even your God, who contends for his people? God said, I'm going to fight for you. Because even though you're going to go into captivity and somebody's going to oppress you, I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to protect you in the midst of it. Moving on, he says, Behold, I have, taken out, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger, and you will never drink it again. And look what he does with that cup. He says, And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors. So that cup of judgment cup of discipline is being taken from his people and now giving to those people who are inflicting the nation Israel. He says, I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, lie down that I may walk over you, who have even made your back like the ground and, and like the street for those who walk over it. So even though the Lord has ushered them into um, captivity, he's still holding the nation that, it, that uh, afflicts the nation Israel responsible for what they've done. God says justice is going to be done. God will not allow those who afflict his people to prosper forever. He's going to bring affliction upon them. So God's last point was don't, 
I mean, understand that God's discipline does not last forever. It needs to run its course, but it will not last forever. And again, he's going to inflict the tormentors. Now, this whole section, as we wrap up here, before we get into some application, it really reiterates the answer to the question that Israel asked in chapter 49, and we addressed last week a little bit. Has God forgotten them? Remember in chapter 49, Israel asked, has God forgotten us? And here we see in this chapter, it wasn't that God forgot them. It's that they forgot God. You have forgotten God. I didn't forget you. I know where you are. You guys have forgotten the Lord. The Lord, in fact, remembers his covenant with his people. He doesn't forget it. I like what um, one commentator said in regards to this. His name is uh, John Oswald. Let me find that quote. Okay, I heard it is. He says this about this section, about God remembering his covenant with his people. He says this. This is really good, too. I really like it. He says, God is not willing to let his people receive the just results of their sin. His settled purpose for his people is to take them out of the wilderness of their own making and restore to them the garden of his making. I think that's a beautiful description of what's going on here. Is Even though Israel deserves to suffer um, for their sins, God is saying, you know what? I'm not going to allow you to sit there. No, I'm going to bring you back to the land to a place of restoration in the garden of my making. And isn't that so true for the Christian? We deserve to be punished by God for our sins. We've all rebelled against God and we deserve to be separated from God for all eternity. But God loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son to die for us and give us a blessing of his making. Again, it's that great exchange that we've talked about over and over again. The righteousness of Christ is exchanged and given to us, and he takes upon himself our sins and our suffering and bears that upon his own body and exchanges again his righteousness for us. That is the picture that is going on here in Isaiah 51. God's saying, you know what? I'm not going to leave my people discomforted. I'm not going to forget my people. I remember them, and I'm going to bring them back to the land. And again, that is exactly what happens in the history of the nation of Israel. And again, that is depicted in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra. So, with that said, what can we take as, as some points of application? Well, it's going to be those exact same four points that I addressed a few minutes ago through the text. Because those same words of comfort are issued to each and every one of us this morning who are God's people. Number one, this is what we can do to find comfort in this world. Look back at God's intervention in your life. That's something for each and every one of us to do, that when we start feeling scared or we're afraid of what's going on, we need to remember and look back how God intervened in our life in the past. What was happening in your life, and each and every one of us will answer this differently, when the Lord reached down and saved us, when he was with like with the nation of Israel, took a rock and hewned it. He took your life and hewned it from the mountain. 
and He's going to use you. He pulled you out for a purpose. Don't ever forget that. God didn't just pull you out to make you suffer. That's not the Lord, no. What was happening in your life when the Lord saved you? And where has the Lord moved you in the past? Or where has He moved within your life in the past? Each and every one of us, if we've been following the Lord for some time, can just talk about how God has over and over again delivered us from something. Or maybe even you, I know I do this, I think back to before I was a Christian, all the times that maybe something bad could have happened in my life and I would have never known the Lord. But for some reason, God saved me from that. He didn't allow me to get in trouble as I should have. Those are things that we need to think about. How did God move or intervene in our life in the past? Secondly, we need to look forward to God's intervention in this world. There's going to be a day when God will ultimately deliver each and every one of us, His children, from this world. And God will deliver His people from all things, either in this life, sometimes God, a lot of times God delivers us from evil in this life, but He's ultimately going to do it at His second coming, where He will correct every injustice, Well, he will correct every evil, every wrong. God will exact judgment. And we need to be patient in this world and allow God to work his will in this world. So we need to look forward to God's intervention in this world and not take it into our own hands. Thirdly, we need to stop focusing on our fears and start focusing on God. And this is probably, you know, probably the biggest thing for a lot of us is some of us have been frightened for so long over certain things in our life that we lose sight of God because we're so focused on the fears that are going on around us or even the supposed fears in our life. They cloud our vision of who God is and what God has done, and we're so focused on that. Again, remember the little child on the side of the pool. They're so focused on being and something bad happening if they jump into the water that they lose sight that dad is right there to catch them. I was thinking of a, of a song. It's a, it's a silly song, so to speak. If you guys remember Veggie Tales, there was a song called God is Bigger Than the Boogeyman. You guys remember that? It's a, it's a great little song, and it's going to be in your head forever now because I mentioned it. And I'm going to do a little dramatic reading of that song, there was a, a little, <laughs> there was a little, uh, a little, I don't know, I think it's asparagus maybe, his name is Junior, and he's sitting in bed, and he's afraid of what's out there, what's lurking in the closet, and so the, the great theologians, Larry and Bob, uh, go up to him, and they say this, you're lying in your bed, you were feeling kind of sleepy, But you couldn't close your eyes because the room was getting creepy. Were those eyeballs in the closet? Was that Godzilla in the hall? There was something big and hairy casting shadows on the wall. Now your heart is beating like a drum. Your skin is getting clammy. There's a hundred tiny monsters jumping right into your jammies. What are you going to do? So that's the question posed to little Junior, right? He's, he's shivering in bed under his blanket, fearful of all those supposed monsters out there. 
And they ask him, what are you going to do, Junior? He says, I'm going to call the police. Wrong answer, Junior. Wrong answer. The theologian Bob steps up and says, no, you don't need to do anything. And he says, what? Why? And they say, because God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than Godzilla or the monsters on TV. Oh, God is bigger than the boogeyman, and he's watching out for you and me. And then Junior replies, were you guys singing that song in your head? Junior replies, so when I'm lying in my bed and the furniture starts creeping, I just laugh and say, hey, cut that out and get back to my sleeping because I know that God's the biggest and he's watching all the while. So when I get scared, I think of him and close my eyes and smile. God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than Godzilla or the monsters on TV. Oh, God is bigger than the boogeyman and he's watching out for you and me. This is exactly what some of us need to say to ourselves. And I'm not belittling real fears, but a lot of us are focused on fears that have yet happened. We're gripped with things that aren't really out there, and we lose sight and focus of God. Although this song is simple, and for children it is so true, how big is your God? Is He bigger than your fears? For Junior, it was the boogeyman or Godzilla or a monster on TV, but for you it could be something else. That is, is God bigger than that? And maybe you need to be reminded that God is watching over you. You are His child, and He's watching over you. And He's got you in His hand, and He's with you the entire time. And lastly, we need to remember that God's discipline does not last forever. Maybe some of you find yourself in a place of discipline right now where you've maybe rebelled against the Lord and you're suffering for that. Because again, suffering or rebelling against God has consequences, even for His own children, as we see with the nation of Israel. And maybe as you're experiencing now, but you need to remember that God disciplines those who He loves. Which parent does not discipline their children so that they will not repeat those mistakes again, and so that they will grow and learn from them. The same thing is true with the Lord. He doesn't just throw us into a room and forget about us. No, He wants us to learn and grow through that process. And we need to remember that God is using the discipline that He's got upon His people to make them a stronger servant of His. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. I thank you, Lord, for the relevance and how it speaks to each and every one of us this morning. For, Lord God, we need to be comforted. Maybe now or another time in our life, we need your comfort. And we need to remember, Lord God, all the ways that you have intervened in our life and how you will intervene in the future. And, Lord God, we need, to, we need your help on focusing on you and not our fears and letting those things cloud you out. And we need to be comforted, Lord, knowing that your discipline does not last forever, but that your discipline is good and righteous and serves a purpose for your people to grow closer to you and to grow stronger for you so that we might glorify you in this world. And so, Lord God, we thank you for this time that we've had. 
And we pray, Lord, that it has been a blessing to you as we expounded upon your word and talked about your character. And we pray, Lord, this morning if that there is someone out there that doesn't know you, who, Lord God, can say, I'm not God's people, and I don't think those things apply to me this morning. I pray, Lord God, that they would cry out to you, that they would see that you are the only means of salvation and comfort in this world. You are the only means of salvation and comfort that lasts forever, that is not fleeting or temporal. And Lord God, they would not experience the cup of your wrath for all eternity. That they would believe that your wrath was poured out on your son Jesus for them. And they would trust you and believe you by faith. And Lord God, they would learn to be your servant. So again, we thank you for this time and pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for joining us in today's study. If you'd like to know more about us or where you can attend one of our services, you can find information online at www.ren.church. That's R-E-N dot church. Thanks for listening.